All right, batting cleanup for us today. It's a professor of economics at the University of Angers in France. He's the director of the Ossian Research Center in Paris. He's the author of Deflation and Liberty, Mises, The Last Night of Liberalism, and The Ethics of Money Production. He's going to talk to us today about the evolution of Mises' monetary thought. Please help me welcome Guido Holzman. How do I switch this? Is on on the main screen? It's on? Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for this warm welcome. Yeah. Listening to Arlene Sinner, I was reminded that, of course, Philip Barkos is wrong on the language question. Right? So Philip said, well, there's a common language, German here. That's not true. There's Viennese. If a Berliner comes to, to Vienna and so he... It's a reception by some people. They would say, oh, hi, so nice to see you. Welcome, come in. How are you doing? It's like a New Yorker coming to Montgomery or something, right? It's like, wow, is this person homosexual? Or <laughs> Is he proposing me some undecent or unfavorable business proposal or something, right? So you expect to be screwed. So you need a translation. You need a translation, right? And when the when the Viennese gets to Vienna and he uh, goes, goes to, into a shop and the, the the guy asks him, "What do you want?" <laughs> it's not really that it's about to kill him, but it's just a little uh, little different. Well, my t- uh, talk uh, today is on the evolution of mon- uh, Mises' monetary thought, and it's uh, a first step in uh, the run-up to next year's uh, celebration of the hundredth anniversary of uh, the publication of the Theory of Money and Credit, which was first published in 1912. The Mises Institute is publishing uh, this book that is the original German text of the first edition of 1912. And this is probably an unintentional feat, but it is a true feat because the, uh, this book is no longer in print in Germany. In Germany, what we still have in print is the second edition of 1924, and it is this second edition that has been translated into English. Now, there are differences between the first and the second edition, sometimes significant differences, which will be so part of my ongoing research to point out and put this into context with uh, Mises' later mature statement of uh, his monetary thought in national economy, respectively in human action. So what I'll talk today is just a little bit about Mises' contributions in uh, the theory of, uh, in, in, in the first edition of the book, and of some of the problems, some of which he repaired in later editions of the same work and in later works on monetary economics. So we'll, we'll talk about these uh, four things. We'll talk about the general themes developed in the uh, theory of money and credit, uh, what distinguishes Mises' approach? What sets him apart, for example, from uh, Fisher, Irving Fisher, some uh, monetarist macroeconomics or Keynesian macroeconomics? What were his contributions to the theory of money? And what are the problems that exist, at least in this first edition, sometimes have remained, but to some extent have also been repaired in uh, later statements? Okay, let's first uh, talk about the, the great themes. 
so we have here, and I will go through this rather quickly, we have uh, uh, an anal analysis of the typology of money. Uh, we have uh, a major focus on the subjective value of money, and this is something that uh, Dr. Murphy has highlighted yesterday in his talk. And Mises uh, integrates money into the general framework established by Karl Menger and explaining what are the causal factors determining the subjective value of money. He highlights uh, the connection that exists between money and therefore the value of money and economic calculation, although he does not develop these questions in, in the theory of money and credit, but only in later work, most notably his theory of socialism. Uh, and he, um, based, based on this new theory that he develops of the subjective value of money, he is able to present a complete analysis of the demand for and supply of money. And this has been the greatest black spot in previous efforts at stating a general theory of money. A third major theme in the book is the analysis of the purchasing power of money. And this analysis of the purchasing power of money, as Mises highlights, can only be achieved coherently and, and uh, deeply once we have a sufficient account of the subjective theory of value. So uh, Mises, in his um, analysis of the purchasing power of money, refutes the traditional quantity theory of money, and uh, although he does not refute it completely, and says also it is a valid core, uh, but the traditional theory was overshooting in, in several respects, and we need to keep this valid core, which is the, the idea that uh, the purchasing power is determined by the demand for and supply of money and get rid of the in, uh, deficient elements. He develops a theory of exchange rates, which uh, uh, continues an analysis begun in the early 19th century by David Ricardo, and uh, on the basis of this also develops an original theory of the balance of payments, which has been highlighted yesterday by Professor Solerno and also uh, discusses the question whether there is some, such a thing as local price differences in equilibrium. And finally, the, the last great theme that he develops in his uh, book is the economics of banking, uh, or more precisely, of fractional reserve banking, because only fractional reserve banking introduces particular problems and particular questions uh, that uh, would not otherwise exist. If all banking was occurring on a 100% basis, if all demand deposits, checkbooks, credit cards, uh, banknotes, and so on issued by banks were covered 100% by, by commodity money, then banks couldn't have an influence on the economy as a whole. They couldn't have a macroeconomic impact. It is only because banks increase the global money supply, the money supply in the larger sense, because they're operating with fractional reserve, that they can have an impact on prices, on interest rates in particular, and therefore can create such a thing as a business cycle. This was Mises' major uh, idea in this book. And in the course of uh, his analysis, he uh, takes issue with uh, one of the most important debates ever waged in, in the history of economic thought, namely the debate between the banking school and the currency school, to which Professor Salerno also referred yesterday, so I will not go into much detail as far as this thing is concerned. So, uh, very briefly said, uh, Mises 
almost completely rejects the teachings of the banking school. He accepts a few points proposed by the banking school, takes over most points from the currency school, thus develops a new synthesis, which is by and large a reinforcement of the currency principle. And uh, on the basis of this has two applications. One is uh, business cycle theory. He explains how any deviation from the currency principle is likely to entail intertemporal disequilibria and therefore a business cycle. And on the other hand, the other application is a political one. The political implication would be that we should aim at a restoration of commodity money, the gold standard in particular. Secondary themes developed in this first edition, not necessarily in the later edition of the book, is uh, uh, the theory of monopoly and monopoly prices. So Mises sees very clearly that government interventions create virtually all monopolies, and this insight is here from the first edition. And a theme that is also quite uh, far uh, advanced is the uh, theory of uh, government interventions. That is, he does not present yet a whole full-blown theory. This would, would do only in the 1920s, in a series of publications, but in this book already, we find the, the main building blocks, namely uh, the idea that uh, interventions are often inefficient, and more than that, interventions can produce exactly the opposite of what the interventionist government seeks to attain. And uh, he applies these uh, insights in the context uh, of analysis of the history of government interventions, the history of uh, monetary systems, uh, most notably by pointing out that uh, uh, one example would be Gresham's Law. Uh, Mises, contrary to many other people uh, writing in his time on monetary economics, for example, Irving Fisher, perfectly understood Gresham's Law. Irving Fisher, still writing in the 1930s, uh, writes in his, in his book on the purchasing power of money, writes, states Gresham's law as follows. He says, uh, bad money drives out good money in general. It's a universal law of economics. Bad money drives out good money. Now, this is, of course, wrong. Right? Uh, in, gen- in a market economy, the good product always drives out the bad product. No user of any commodity has an incentive to use the inferior product, and to reject the superior product. Money is not different. If, if we had the choice between money losing 10% or more of its purchasing power annually and a money that keeps its purchasing power or increases in purchasing power, such as gold or, or silver, well, most people would actually use uh, the latter. So what's the error here? Well, uh, the error is that Fisher doesn't respect the condition. Bad money drives out good money only if the law creates an artificial equality between the two. If the law says you can settle all your debt either with dollars, which uh, lose whatever, 5 to 10% of their purchasing power uh, every year, or with with, uh, silver, which keeps or appreciates its purchasing power, then, well, then most people would actually keep the good money for themselves and settle the debt with the bad money. So the the consequence is that only the bad money would remain in circulation and the good money is being driven out of the market. So bad money drives good money out of circulation only in the context of legal equality between bad money and good money. That is only in an interventionist context. Gresham's law is not a law of the market economy. It's a law of interventionism. Irving Fisher could have learned this by reading Mises' book, The Theory of Money and Credit, 
which was only translated into English in 1934. Maybe he read a little German. In those days, many American economists still read German, and also some English economists, for example, John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard Keynes actually wrote a review of this book, uh, which said something to the effect, he concluded, well, this is a very decent and fine work, uh, but uh, fairly unoriginal in content and conclusions. And 30 years later, he would then confess in a footnote in his general theory, published in 1936, that his German is not really good enough to understand anything in the text that he wouldn't know from the outset. <laughs> so, uh, so far to the scholarship of John Mays, I mean, not Keynes. I won't go into this detail, right? I mean, it's an interesting subject in its own term. Well, uh, what is Mises' approach? Mises' approach is uh, distinguished by certain uh, well, uh, elements that should be highlighted. One is the stress on uncertainty. Human beings do not know the future. At the point of time of acting, we are always, entrepreneurs are uh, investing now in light of revenues that they expect for the future. But Mises also highlights that, of course, the same thing holds true in the case of every user of money. If we use money, uh, we, we hoard money, we uh, have a cash balance at the bank or just money tickets in our pocket, well, it is because we expect the purchasing power to be such and such tomorrow or in the near future. So often in uh, uh, the history, history textbooks, textbooks in the history of economic thought, it is stated that uh, Keynes uh, distinguished himself by uh, uh, underlying uncertainty in his approach, and that was uh, a big difference as compared to uh, standard economic theory. Well, this is maybe correct as far as uh, Irving Fisher's theory is concerned, but not, again, as, as far as the Austrians are concerned. The second element is methodological individualism. Uh, so the uh, point of the, uh, the, the analysis is to trace back all macro phenom phenomena, such as uh, inflation, the business cycle, and so on, back to individual behavior, and not reason as though the macro phenomena existed independent of individual behavior. Another uh, interesting element is that uh, Mises combines theory and history. There's actually a lot of historical analysis in the book, and here he continues a tradition uh, that started with Adam Smith, and of course uh, is, is a recipe of any well-written book to make it just interesting for the reader. The central problem that Mises uh, analyzed, and he stresses that this is actually the central problem of monetary theory, is to determine the purchasing power of money. Or more precisely, the exchange ratio between uh, money and all other individual economic goods. Because the money prices that are being paid on the market determine, of course, the profit rates of all businesses. It is only once we understand what are the causes of each individual price, prices of consumer goods, prices of intermediate goods, prices of original factors of production, and so on, can we understand why entrepreneurs tend to behave in this way rather than another. And another uh, hypothesis that uh, distinguishes his approach is uh, the central idea of classical economics, which says classical economics apart from mercantilism and from Keynesianism, namely the insight that the money supply is irrelevant from an aggregate point of view. The economy is not driven by 
the level of uh, monetary spending, spending on consumer goods, but also spending on producer goods and so on, but it is driven by savings and by the division of labor. So what were Mises' contributions then? What are the, based on these elements of approach, what were the contributions that he made in the theory of money and credit? A fundamental thing that he points out on the very first page is that the phenomenon of money is contingent. Money does not exist in all social contexts. It exists only in societies based on private property rights. And of course, this is an element that he would later develop in more, more detail in the 1920s when he was writing on the problems of socialism, said socialism cannot work because we don't have money prices. And actual economic calculation is cast in terms of money prices, but these prices do not exist just in any social context. They exist only in free societies which have private property rights. They exist only in market economies. So money is historically and logically contingent. Another contribution is his typology of money. He distinguishes fundamentally between money, or money also called money in the narrow sense, and money substitutes, legal claims on money, legal claims that can be converted immediately into money, can be converted into money on demand. As far as money is concerned, he distinguishes between commodity, credit, and fiat money, and he refutes the theory that was already widespread in his day and is, is still widespread in our day, the theory according to which money in general is necessarily a claim on other goods. He called, later on, he called this theory the assignment theory of money, the claim theory of money. Money is just a ticket uh, that gives you a right to a certain, uh, certain portion of uh, annual GDP. But Mises stresses money is not a ticket, it's not a claim on something. You don't have a right, if you, have, you carry a, a banknote with you, that doesn't give you the right to whatever, so and so many liters of beer or so and so many uh, pounds of, of wheat, but it allows you to bargain for beer and bargain for, for wheat on the market. As far as money substitutes are concerned, Mises adopts one element proposed by the banking school in critique of the currency school, namely the idea that there is an equivalent, an economic equivalent, between demand deposits on the one hand and banknotes on the other hand. The currency school had seen here a fundamental difference, and this had disastrous practical implications, because when they set out to uh, reform the monetary and the banking system in order to make it more stable, they applied their insight, namely that the Money supply is irrelevant from an aggregate point of view. They applied this only to banknotes and not to demand deposits. So the consequence was that the production of banknotes was uh, effectively uh, limited, henceforth, by the law, but that the production of demand deposits exploded in the decades that followed and made the banking system as fragile as it had been before and even more fragile and so economic crisis would continue, and this in turn would discredit the whole idea, the whole principles of the bank, of the currency school. Another noteworthy contribution here is that Mises highlights the fact that token coins are ultimately money substitutes. That is, there is no basic difference between, from an economic point of view, between uh, demand deposits, banknotes, and token coins. 
small change that we use to, to make transactions. It's ultimately the same thing. Two other major contributions were his uh, refutation of the traditional quantity theory, uh, in particular in refuting Adam Smith's uh, approach uh, and all holistic approaches. And as I've uh, said, Mises highlights the valid core of the quantity theory, which is the idea that money prices and therefore uh, the purchasing power of money is being determined by the demand for and supply of money. The problem was that all previous authors who had analyzed these problems and had also seen the, uh, uh, that one had somehow to come up with an explanation for the demand for money, well, they couldn't do this because they didn't, they couldn't square, they couldn't explain the demand for money in more fundamental terms. They didn't have a subjective value theory of the demand for money, which is something that Mises provided in his book. So he gives us the explanation of the subjective value of money, which is based on a regression theorem, which has been highlighted yesterday by, by Dr. Murphy. Let me just point out here that the idea of the regression itself, that is that today's money prices derive their value from the fact that yesterday money had already purchasing power, so we are informed about its purchasing power. It's not a, a heck and hen problem. Egg and hen problem. Heck and hen. This idea had already been expressed by Friedrich von Wieser. So the regression idea itself, the regression theory itself, essentially stems from Wieser. What Mises did was to combine this with this analysis of the demand for money, which is something that Wieser had uh, thought was impossible. A third round of contributions to the theory of money, we'll get to five, right? So we won't go to until 36 or so. We'll get to five, five slides on his contributions to the theory of money. So Mises develops a theory for the, of the demand for money. So it's a theory for cash balances. Right? The demand for money is the demand that we have for cash balances. And Mises stresses from the outset that it is uh, uh, wrong to distinguish money hoarding from money in circulation. Right? All uh, units of money are being held, are being hoarded, and uh, so the, the distinction that the banking school made, say, well, we need to uh, stabilize the, the units that are being in circulation is irrelevant because all units are ultimately being used. Mises uh, claims that there are no interlocal price dif differences. And so sometimes, of course, we see that uh, a beer costs more in Vienna than it would cost 50 miles outside of Vienna, but Mises says, well, that's not really a price difference because the beer itself is not the same economic good. Beer served uh, in the very center of Vienna is a different economic good from the one that exists outside. So given these quality differences, there are no real price differences. And he develops a theory of exchange rate, about which I will not say much because we need to come to the end. Mises explains why the purchasing power of money cannot be measured, and he delivers an important historical analysis of inflationism in a chapter that disappeared in later editions of the same book. So we have here a new project for Arlene Zinner, right? Translate chapter 7 uh, out of uh, book 2 of the f original first edition of the Theory of Money and Credit. And in this uh, uh, chapter is very interesting because it shows well, how well-read and well-informed Mises was uh, about the history of monetary systems, history of monetary policy. For example, there is an eight-page uh, discussion of uh, monetary policy in the United States. Uh, he 
discusses, among other things, the origin of inflationism in the Birmingham Currency School, Thomas Edward and other authors, and, uh, well, discusses the North American legacy of fiat money. Okay, I'll uh, swap over the, the next two. So Mises, uh, uh, furthermore, distinguishes between commodity credit and um, fiduciary credit, thus establishing the foundations for a realist theory of finance. He critiques the banking school theory, and he also critiques the currency school, as I've said, as Professor Solano has uh, pointed out yesterday. So he comes up with a new synthesis, and he uses these insights to develop the business cycle theory that Dr. Murphy has discussed yesterday, and with which most of you uh, are familiar So what are the problems in this monetary analysis, at least as far as this first edition is concerned? Uh, One problem is uh, that Mises, according to Mises, the value of money is equal to the subjective value of the goods that can be bought with money. Uh, And this is a problem that he would repair, for example, in in human action. human action, you wouldn't find this point. Uh, The the problem is that you you get very quickly from such a claim to uh, the... Uh, maintenance of the claim theory of money or assignment theory of money, right? If value is derived from uh, these goods that you can buy with money and not, for example, from the hoarding services provided by money, then you end up with the assignment theory. Mises claims that the parallel use of several monies is uh, problematic because it complicates exchange techniques, and he even goes so far as to uh, claim that uh, monetary policy should impose a single currency, He claims that the physical characteristics of money are secondary or irrelevant. And this uh, also shows up in the vocabulary that he uses. He uses, well, in the American, in the English tradition, we have the term fiat money, which insinuates, gives us a hint that this money is being imposed on the market. But the original German term is Zeichengeld, literally translated as sign money. So this whole uh, coercion aspect is outside of, uh, of of the purview. And of course, here too, Mises would eventually have second, second thoughts uh, when, starting in the 1920s, he would set out for a full-blown return to the currency principle and to commodity money. And he also makes a very uh, funny claim, maybe, that money prices can be rolled over because of unorganized markets. Uh, and so he sees here an independent cause of uh, price inflation. Another round of problems. Mises claims that ideal money would be money with an unchanging inner objective exchange value. This is a term that he takes over from Karl Menger. Uh, only he says, well, so this would be the ideal money, and he even uh, calls this neutral money. So the term neutral money we find in the first edition, not in the second edition of the book. Uh, and Mises uh, refrains from endorsing this ideal concept of neutral money only because of the practical problems of uh, realizing it. He he says monetary authorities or any human being would not have sufficient knowledge to uh, realize this. Another problem is uh, that circularity in his argument, uh, the inner objective exchange value uh, should be stable in order to prevent redistributions of income that uh, result from, from changes in the inobjective exchange value. But in order to stabilize it, one would have to modify, one would have to vary the money supply. 
for example, through a central bank, some other monetary authority. Thus, this very stabilization itself would bring about redistributions. Right? So the whole argument was incoherent, and probably that is the reason why, why he dropped that chapter out of later editions. Uh, he gives also other reasons why increases of the money supply can be beneficial. So exceptional circumstances that bring him to deviate from the, the central thesis of classical monetary theory, as we find it in Smith or Ricardo, namely that the money supply is irrelevant, he argues, as does Adam Smith and also David Ricardo, that a nation as a whole may gain by substituting immaterial money for commodity money. Because if we use paper money, for example, rather than gold or silver, then we can export our gold and silver in exchange for other real goods, thus enriching ourselves. It's an argument that he rejects as from the 1920s. We find other interesting ideas. For example, Mises uh, uh, adopts Ricardo's uh, claim that Ricardo presents in his 1816 proposals for a secure and economic currency. Mises thinks that one can have a gold standard without an effective gold circulation. Sounds to me like beer without alcohol. But, right, so in this too, right, he would reject in later work. Mises uh, highlights that uh, uh, fiduciary media production can create forced savings. And he even claims that this in the past has amounted to substantial capital accumulation. And as Professor Salerno has reminded us yesterday, this is not something that we find in human action, where he completely rejects this idea, where he says that all achievements of capitalism would have been possible without fiduciary media. And finally, again an argument that has been discussed yesterday, right? Mises highlights uh, 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 increases of the money supply can be beneficial because they might be instrumental in promoting banking. So thinking that banks fractional reserve banks were a major force of progress. So all these things Mises later on rejected, and he became an ever more radical and coherent uh, representative of the currency principle. He makes another astounding thing, the case for a world bank. That is, he doesn't actually say in his conclusion, final conclusion of the book, we should have a world bank, but he details all the, uh, the reasons that would speak in favor of such a product. And among other things, he says, well, there are different institutional arrangements are possible, and then he describes one institutional arrangement, which is exactly the one that we find today with the euro system. In the euro system, it's different national central banks that actually create euros, and they are being coordinated through a central coordinating mechanism, namely the Council of Governors, and the ECB actually plays the role of a kind of a controller. So it's very funny to see this, right? So... The euro system, fortunately, right, these guys don't quote Mises, but they could have. <laughs> and he also states that uh, the Austrian business cycle theory that he presents right from the first edition is not a full-blown theory of the business cycle, but only highlights one element of such a theory. And here, too, there's a complete revision uh, of his uh, point of view, as from the second edition, where he says we, we have here not only a full-blown theory of the business cycle, but the only one, the only that really stands up on logical grounds. Other problematic uh, elements uh, is uh, in, in his theory of subjective uh, value theory that he uh, explains subjective value both in psychological and praxeological terms rather than having a purely praxeological uh, theory. So psychological theory would be, well, I prefer uh, a tomato because the feelings of um, consuming, eating the tomato 
are so wonderful and therefore I eat it, whereas the praxeological theory would be, well, I value the tomato more than other things, for example, the money that I give in exchange for the tomato. He uh, proposes, an he believes in the equivalence theory of finance, which is actually uh, today better known under the name of uh, the public choice theory of public finance, that is, uh, uh, tax payments are uh, elements in an exchange between the citizens and the governments. Right? Not something that we would find in his later work, and he even ridicules this position in later work. And we have the distinction between economic motives and other motives. And that was it. 